From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. This season of Innovators on Tap is sponsored by Husco International, a fast-growing, community-oriented company specializing in high-performance hydraulic and electromechanical components. With over 70 years of experience designing and manufacturing these components, Husco takes pride in collaborating with customers to develop innovative solutions. Husco has U.S. locations in Wisconsin and Iowa and global locations in England, Germany, China, and India. A privately owned company that offers more than just a job, a career at Husco is an entrepreneurial experience full of incredible opportunities for growth, creativity, and innovation. Go to husco.com to begin your next adventure and put the lessons you've learned from the podcast to work. Today's guest is Elmer Moore, who started his entrepreneurial journey by helping create a comedy troupe in college before going on to a more traditional career. He later shifted his focus to teaching venture creation to others, where he was motivated to put his ideas into practice by starting his own company. Elmer is currently the executive director of Scale Up Milwaukee, a professor at Marquette University and the founder of the Milwaukee Denim Company. These experiences have given Elmer a unique and powerful perspective of entrepreneurship, including his belief that truth produces safety. It is when we don't have a grounding in truth that perception and self-delusion get in the way. We discuss why he views failure as a tightrope, how entrepreneurship is less about business and more about confidence, and the difference between winning and not losing. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Elmer, welcome and thank you for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Thank you so much. I'm excited for this conversation. Well, so before we get into your career journey and and really get your insights on entrepreneurship, I want to take you back to your sophomore year of college, where I believe you were part of a comedy troupe called Uninvited Guests, and I think you described it as your entrepreneurial dream. So can you give us a little bit more details about that experience? The reason why it was a dream is there was, at, at, at the largest point, there was nine of us and we were driving up and down the East Coast, getting paid to essentially exhibit our ridiculous, wild friendship on stage. You know, the, the entrepreneur's dream is to make money doing what you would love to do anyway. And so we had so much fun. We had a bunch of adventures. I mean, I think about uh, the time that we went to the National Association of College Entertainers or something like that. Uh, con- conference or convention in Syracuse, New York. And so we road tripped and in two cars, nine of us traveled something like seven hours and we slept in one hotel room, nine guys, one hotel room and all the smells that come along with it. And we just really had an amazing time. Um, and so it took me a long time to figure out that that's actually that was my first entrepreneurial experience. I mean, it, when I say it took a long time, I was a 
I was many, many years, if not decades after college, when I realized like, oh, right, that happened. Um, that was everything we want to see entrepreneurs do from finding an opportunity to uh, forming a mechanism to create value, to organizing it, to finding a way to communicate the value that we offer to a market, to trading said value for money. It was absolutely an entrepreneur. And we had a bank account and um, we ate really great Taco Bell meals and it was wonderful. Oh, that is awesome. So Elmer, I know you're currently the executive director of Scale Up Milwaukee. And could you just give us a little bit of an idea of what does that organization do? So our mission or our tag is that we're focused on radically transforming the culture of growth in the greater Milwaukee region. So seven years ago, the godfather of Scale Up, a guy named Dan Eisenberg, brought a pilot program to Milwaukee which would eventually become Scale Up Milwaukee. We were the first North American deployment of this strategy. And Dan invented a model that is uh, really beautiful in its simplicity. The simple idea is that we can generate all the things we want to see in economic development by helping companies grow. That's it. It's, it's really that simple. Uh, the, the academic version of it includes ways that you intervene in an economy or in an ecosystem to encourage a change in attitudes and processes related to growth. So if there's something that makes us a little different than other entrepreneurship programs, it's we understand that if I want to help a company grow, I've also got to work with the banks so that they understand how to help companies grow. I've got to work with attorneys and accountants and the universities so that they understand their role in helping companies grow. Um, but really, truthfully, at our core, we've come to understand how powerful culture is. And it plays out in language, it plays out in the level of aspirations, it plays out in uh, people repeating what they see. And so we want to put growth at the forefront of everyone's mind. And we want to dismantle or decrease some of the barriers that are, are inhibiting people growing their businesses because growing businesses hire people and create wealth and uh, reinvest in communities and change lives. So if you look across the many companies you've worked with, I'm curious, you talk about these barriers. Is there one or two common ones that tend to stand out that you face on a regular basis? The, the most significant barrier is ambition. Uh, and the reality is if you are trying to build a business that grows 10% a year, you'll probably underachieve and grow 5% a year. If that, if you are diligently trying to grow a business, that's going to grow 25, 30, 45%, you'll still likely underachieve that, but you're more likely to get 15, 20, 25%. That ambition and that, uh, that planning is actually an indicator of many things, including relative confidence in the economy, relative confidence in your own abilities in the system that you've created and so on. And, and so we've taken a pretty strategic approach at being an intervention in all of that. The second thing that I would be remiss if I didn't mention is, uh, 
just the, the realities of some of the structural or systemic hindrances, headwinds, prohibitions, obstacles that uh, really impede success on so many levels, whether we call it entrepreneurial success, economic thriving, uh, and, and social thriving, right? And all of those are isms. It is the racism and the classism and sexism, genderism, and so on. We have chosen to attack both the system that is uh, sustaining some of these systemic headwinds, and we are also really doing everything we can to support those owners. And, you know, we always want to remember that businesses are owned by people, and people, interestingly, act like people. And so there's a, a specific approach we take to, again, encouraging those ambitions, uh, accommodating the realities of what it's like to deal with the stresses and the, and the challenges of owning a business. And we want to we want to make people feel supported and encouraged while they do that. Those are incredibly big topics that we could clearly spend more than the rest of this podcast on. I want to just touch a little bit more on the first one and on ambition because you know, some of what I learned at Cree was we were able to develop a culture where people had no trouble signing up for things they didn't know how to get to. So for example, most of our annual plans, even when we were a four or $500 million company were to double the business in the next year. And we would actually sign up for those goals and we would actually tie our bonuses to them. And for many years we had cliff vesting, which meant you didn't get it if you didn't hit it. So it's all or nothing. And we often didn't get it, but it actually didn't demotivate the team. And I think there's many reasons for that. But what was interesting is it proved to me the only way you're going to grow 30% is by trying to grow at the level. And so I'm curious, I know what we did at Cree, but as you work with these other companies, how do you try to get someone who's afraid of signing up for something and missing, right? And and, and the, the negative connotations that come with that and, and getting them to embrace this idea, it's okay to miss. It's better to go for it. How do you try to tease that out of people? The most important thing is really assessing culture. Having a culture which is focused on growth and, and having lofty, scary ambitions, that's the, that's the key. And clearly, you embedded that in the culture of Cree, so much so that it didn't have to be part of the conversation. So much so that uh, you all understood that if you missed targets, that you still celebrated the attempt. That's a big deal. Um, and again, culture is coachable. It is not created. Uh, it is not something that you can write on a sheet of paper and then inject into a company like a blood transfusion into a ailing dog. But it is something that you can nurture and cultivate and, and in fact, steer. And so that's our approach on how do we help those companies get there, right? It is, it's the gap between what we want from them and what we say to them, right? What we say is we are focused on economic development and economic prosperity in our community. We are focused on growth and challenging you to grow your business. We are focused on surrounding you with the resources you need to grow your business. Um, that's what we're saying. 
what we're doing and what we expect from them is to do things that scare them, um, meaning we want them to be scared. We want them to do things that minutes, hours, days before they thought unthinkable because of whatever risks. We want them to transition from what we often consider Midwestern modesty to being loud and proud of growth. We do know that it's really hard to emulate or to aspire to something you've never seen. And so we want the companies and the owners with whom we have relationships to be the thing that others see. So that's how we think of doing the work for companies we haven't yet met. One of the ideas you were teasing out there is, you know, it's about culture, it's about reshaping people's relationship with failure. But what you're really getting at is something I like to talk about, which is the difference between the mindset and the skill set. And so often we're focused on skills when really we're talking about, you know, more about how people think. And so I'm curious, do you think there's a idea where to help people succeed. And I agree the goal is not to fail, but I believe you want to teach people how to be resilient to failure, right? They have to learn on their own to be comfortable with this moment, right? So that they can become unafraid of trying that next thing. And and I almost wonder if one of the things we do with small businesses, which is to try to help them succeed, what happens if we did the opposite? We actually help them fail, not because we want them to fail, because we want to be there to guide them through the learning that comes from it. Because I think once you survive it a couple of times, you have this superpower that like you can do it again, but you got to get through it, right? It's We can talk about it, but it's a big difference between me sharing my story or you sharing your story. What do you think about this idea we actually take people through the failure process and actually have them fail. One way is to make failure um, less dangerous, right? Um, it's the it's the sort of the, the trapeze idea, right? You just put a net under them. So what I think I'm hearing you say is let's, let's lift those tight ropes three feet off the ground with an understanding that uh, when those entrepreneurs, when those risk takers fall, they might break a leg, but they probably won't break a neck. Um, and what is that gonna do? Well, it's gonna do one of two things, per my opinion. It is going to teach a lot of folks how to balance and to the, the least risk averse, it's going to give them an opportunity to prove that they can do a handstand and a cartwheel on this tightrope and flips and all those kinds of tricks. But it, it's also likely to convince some folks that I can't, I just can't fall. Even though I'm not going to break my neck, I just can't fall. I can't break my leg. And it's interesting. You don't learn how to succeed by being terrified of losing. You actually learn how to succeed by really loving the win. You know, taking your idea a little bit further though, imagine if we started when we had college students 
so early on in their lives. So I know you teach at Marquette, you teach a class around new venture creation, but imagine if we use that moment and instead of taking them through what we do, we put them on tight ropes, we put them up pretty high. We didn't tell them there was a net. There's one, but we're not going to tell them because that won't have the same effect. And over that time that they're with us, we let them go through some experiences where they're going to fall a couple of times just so that they can learn what it's like. They can either realize they're not afraid of it, they're willing to do it again, or they might recognize that I really don't like that feeling. And that's okay. There are many really important value-added roles for people that are wired differently. And you're giving them an opportunity to understand who they are and maybe where they can be most successful way earlier in the process. I, I just not sure that's what we're doing enough today in higher ed. What do you think about that? I want to believe that that's actually what we're doing in my course, right? Do you know how you learn how to create a venture? You create a venture, right? You find an opportunity um, and you build a thing to to make value out of it. You know, we've, we've been slowly getting towards that. You know, think about the word pivot, right? The word pivot might as well have been invented about 10 years ago. It was, it, it used to mean something you did on the basketball court. And then all of a sudden it meant how to explain failure in a way that didn't use the F word. So now we've got that language embedded, but the problem with it is we've so uh, absorbed the word pivot that we've actually effectively told everyone there was a net below them and we painted it to look like a giant mattress. So in our class, uh, we invite students to actually start a thing. It totally works because you know what? If it fails miserably, um, it's just the venture failing. In fact, I don't want to say I'll reward them for failing miserably, but I'm high-fiving them the whole way. Like, good for you for going big, even though the thing didn't work. Turns out it's also useful for their peers to see what it looks like when someone goes full speed in what turns out to be the wrong direction. And there has to be a little bit of a postmortem. Why didn't that thing work? Was it a bad idea? Was it a bad execution? Am I not the right person? And so on. But I wholeheartedly agree in the value of um, creating a moment f- so that folks can uh, learn about who they are and how they'll respond in the face of the big F word, failure. So I know at one point you actually took your own advice and you started your own company uh, called Milwaukee Denim. And I'm curious what proved to be what you expected and what, when you did it yourself, was different than maybe what you were even teaching before that? So I might surprise you with where, where I'll start. Building a manufacturing business is incredibly difficult. That was only a little bit surprising. I thought, I, I thought it was hard. It was exponentially harder. But even before then, the, the most surprising, um, frankly, painful parts of the experience we're reconciling how I as an individual interacted with the world. Like, what is my brand? And uh, I, I've really enjoyed talking to people, never in this format, but in a one-on-one format, about how difficult it was for me to move to this new place, right? I moved to Milwaukee. You know, when I first arrived, I was working for a shoe company. So 
whoever met me thought of me as the shoe guy. And then I started working on scale up and I was the scale up guy. And when I was working on Milwaukee denim, which I started working on Milwaukee denim while I was working for the shoe company, I had these facets to who I was. And I truly, honestly thought of myself as more than one person. I thought of myself as Milwaukee denim Elmer, and there was scale up Elmer. And then uh, starting in 2016, there was uh, Marquette instructor Elmer. And I exerted so much energy keeping those Elmers divided. Of all the things that I wish I could have done differently, I wish I had not wasted that time and energy trying to be different people. It was, I, I can barely communicate to you how incredibly hard it was for me to bear the thought of someone at my job knowing that I did these other jobs. Um, and it was for all three of them. Okay, so let's think about this. Why would the university that has hired me to teach a course on creating a new venture be upset that I have a new venture that I'm creating? Um, oh, and by the way, I also work for an entrepreneurship ecosystem project that supports people who've created their own ventures. Why would my boss at from the Greater Milwaukee Committee not find it incredibly useful and valuable that I have uh, the credential of being connected to Marquette and that I, it, it just, it made no sense, but only in hindsight. Um, so that was the really big surprise. And if there's something useful about that, it actually does relate to authenticity um, and being one, one self all the time. It, it's always worth noting that there's a difference between being one self but also fitting the environment, right? It's, I am myself, but when I go to Germany, I'm going to try to speak German. That's not being inauthentic. So there's value in being one self. The second thing is, um, you know, frankly, the fear of failure, right? So if I spend my days working at a place supporting what is now hundreds of small businesses around the community, but my own business fails, what does that say about me? If I spend um, my, my evenings working on my own business, but the hundreds of businesses that I'm supporting around the community aren't growing exponentially, well, what does that say about my, my business? So there was all these um, knots that I tied in my own psyche that, you know, if you'd asked me about this 10 years ago, that's not what I would have predicted was going to be a, a, a limiting factor. If you're enjoying this episode and want to learn more about how you can discover the mindset to pursue the impossible, please check out my new book, The Innovator's Spirit, where I explain the beliefs that lead to the behaviors that make innovation possible. It is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Now, let's get back to the show. Now I'm going to switch gears and get even more into kind of your mindset, because I think that's where you started to take us. I think this will be really helpful, kind of how you think about innovation, entrepreneurship, new venture creation. So if you're going to pursue a new innovative idea, 
with a team, what do you think is more important, the brutal truths or psychological safety? I don't like those two ideas being at odds with one another. I think there, there is actually truth produces safety. It is when we don't have sort of a grounding in truth, uh, that perception and um, self-delusion get in the way. So between those two, I pick yes. So when confronted with a problem, are you more likely to think outside the box, build a better box, or set the box on fire? <laughs> I love this. So um, I went to business school, and uh, this is a, it's such a timely question because I was just revisiting some of uh, this information. I went to business school in New York. I went to Columbia, and there was a, a professor there, Jacob Goldenstein, who taught a class called Systematic Creativity in Business. And he's actually done, he's written a number of books. One of them is about the, the kind of fallacy of in the box versus out of the box thinking. And his notion was the most creative ideas are in the box, but you have to reconsider what it means to be inside and out of the, out of the box. Uh, and there was a whole framework and he talked about manipulating variables and attributes and I loved it. And I was actually just revisiting some of this content to sort of form an opinion about how to communicate creative problem solving and how to communicate or even teach how to address um, a problem. So what I'm teasing out when I'm going down that path is that what I found is that phrase, the box tends to create boundaries, real or imagined for most people, and that the moment there's any association with it, you've limited the realm of possibility. And so, so often what we were trying to do is especially, you know, we were in the pure innovation businesses, it, you have to, the boundary conditions are a trap. The moment you accept them, you're limiting, you know, what could, what great could happen. It's why it's so helpful to get someone from a different industry to come in and look at your problem because they don't relate to any of that. And so to me, it's a, I think all three methods have value. But in my case, when we were trying to truly drive innovation, the least association with someone else's boundary conditions, typically the better off we found in terms of ideas. That being said, when it comes time to implementation, you are implementing them relative to other people's boundary conditions. So you can't ignore it in the end. You have to somehow put it aside for ideation, but it then becomes a very real part of implementation. So uh, Chuck, do you listen to music? Uh-huh. What do you listen to? I am still listening to classic rock and roll primarily. So I asked the question because, um, you know, rhythm, melody, harmonic scales are limiting factors. Those are boxes. And uh, I agree with you. You when you want to write a song or if you want to develop a tune first, you have none of those constrictions, but then you, you, you put a little bit of a stake in the ground. It's going to be fast. It's going to be slow. It's going to have this, uh, time signature. And then that actually that rhythm, that cadence or that scale becomes, um, a skeleton on which you can actually build something really beautiful. So I don't actually think, you can be 
I'm going to parse out creativity versus innovation. I don't think you can be truly innovative without a little bit of restriction. So you start with creativity, you invent something, you, you materialize something, and it is from that that you can be innovative. I love that. So when you're evaluating talent, what do you believe is the most important to someone's future success. And let's do it in the framework of either when you were running your business or even when you're looking for people who are leading businesses as part of Scale Up Milwaukee. Residue of a growth mindset. It is uh, flexibility in thinking. It's, it's critical reasoning. Um, I watch people process. I look for folks who think. It's the difference between software and firmware. And um, I think people who operate on software are much more interesting, much more capable. Uh, and the difference being, you know, firmware is like the calculator you got in your pencil set in fifth grade that has eight digits and that's it. It was built to, to, to do a thing and it will never do any other thing versus software, which is what runs our world now. Uh, that can be adaptive and flexible and uh, can be improved. It can also be corrupted, but that's another conversation. Um, so I look for those things. So last question, is your personal decision bias to limit your downside or maximize your upside? I am pretty focused on the, the instrument that I am designed to be. And... The status quo is sufficient downside that I can only focus on maximizing upside. And um, in this moment, I, I do feel a responsibility to, you know, create paths and opportunities and be a model um, for for how we can interact with with our our world. And so. It only makes sense to commit myself, ourselves to substantial, and I mean that in, in the truest way, substantive, substantial, meaningful, life-affirming change um, and, and the creation of value such that we can see true prosperity, economic, social, you know, health, mental, emotional prosperity. So all upside, baby. <laughs> before we wrap up, is there something you wish we would have talked about or you want to mention before we kind of close this out? So if I was to have a final comment um, that, that we're better for trying and uh, you know, as it relates to failure in, in ways that are more significant than anything I've seen in my lifetime, uh, we are truly we're, we're reinventing our country and uh, I am excited to think wearing my, wearing my future self, think in hindsight about the story of my participation in this moment. And uh, I'm going to put a lot of things out there. I'm going to try to do some really significant, uh, scary things that probably won't work, but I, I want to be proud of myself for having tried. So, um, Amen. And thank you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation and kind of reflect on some of these ideas. Uh, looking forward to our follow-ups. 
Thanks to Elmer for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing some lessons from his career, including his advice that culture is not something you can write on a sheet of paper and inject into a company. It is something you have to nurture and cultivate. It's the gap between what we want from them and what we say to them. We want to thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow our audience so far, including our sponsor, Husco International. While we are proud of our success, we're just getting started and hope that you will tell your friends about our show. We'd also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com, including transcripts, articles, and an option to sign up for the Innovation Alley newsletter. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.